Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Rowe, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. December 5. On this date in history, in the year 1945, an aircraft squadron disappears in the Bermuda Triangle. At 2.10 p.m., five U.S. Navy Avenger torpedo bombers comprising Flight 19 take off from the Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Station in Florida on a routine three-hour training mission. After having completed their objective, Flight 19 was scheduled to take them due east for an additional 67 miles, then turn north for 73 miles, and back to the air station after that, totaling a distance of 120 miles. They never returned. Two hours after the flight began, the leader of the squadron, who had been flying in the area for more than six months, reported that his compass and backup compass had failed and that his position was unknown. The other planes experienced similar instrument malfunctions. Radio facilities on land were contacted to find the location of the lost squadron, but none were successful. After two more hours of confused messages from the flyers, a distorted radio transmission from the squadron leader was heard at 6.20 p.m., apparently calling for his men to prepare to ditch their aircraft simultaneously because of the lack of fuel. By this time, several land radar stations finally determined that Flight 19 was somewhere north of the Bahamas and east of the Florida coast, and at 7.27 p.m., a search-and-rescue Mariner aircraft took off with a 13-man crew. Three minutes later, the Mariner aircraft radioed to its home base that its mission was underway. The Mariner was never heard from again. Later, there was a report from a tanker cruising off the coast of Florida of a visible explosion seen at 7.50 p.m. The disappearance of the 14 men of Flight 19 and the 13 men of the Mariner led to one of the largest air and sea searches to that date, and hundreds of ships and aircraft combed thousands of square miles of the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, and remote locations within the interior of Florida. No trace of the bodies or aircraft was ever found, although naval officials maintained that the remains of the six aircraft and 27 men were not found because stormy weather destroyed the evidence. The story of the lost squadron helped cement the legend of the Bermuda Triangle, an area of the Atlantic Ocean where ships and aircraft are said to disappear without a trace. The Bermuda Triangle is said to stretch from the southern U.S. coast across to Bermuda and down to the Atlantic coast of Cuba and Santo Domingo. December 6. On this date in history, in the year 1884, the Washington Monument is completed. In Washington, D.C., workers place a nine-inch aluminum pyramid inscribed with Laus Dio, meaning 
praise be to God, atop a tower of white marble, completing the construction of an impressive monument to the city's namesake and the nation's first president, George Washington. As early as 1783, the infant U.S. Congress decided that a statue of George Washington, the great Revolutionary War general, should be placed near the site of the new congressional building, wherever it might be. After then, President Washington asked him to lay out a new federal capital on the Potomac River in 1791. Architect Pierre L'Enfant left a place for the statue at the western end of the sweeping National Mall, near the monument's present location. It wasn't until 1832, however, 33 years after Washington's death, that anyone really did anything about the monument. That year, a private Washington National Monument Society was formed. After holding a design competition and choosing an elaborate Greek temple-like design by architect Robert Mills, the Society began a fundraising drive to raise money for the statue's construction. These efforts, including appeals to the nation's school children, raised some $230,000, far short of the $1 million needed. Construction began anyway. On July 4, 1848, as representatives of the Society laid the cornerstone of the monument, a 24,500-pound block of pure white marble. Six years later, with funds running low, construction was halted. Around the time the Civil War began in 1861, author Mark Twain described the unfinished monument as looking like a hollow, oversized chimney. No further progress was made until 1876, the centennial of American independence, when President Ulysses S. Grant authorized construction to be completed. Made of some 36,000 blocks of marble and granite stacked 555 feet in the air, the monument was the tallest structure in the world at the time of its completion in December 1884. In the six months following the dedication ceremony, over 10,000 people climbed the nearly 900 steps to the top of the Washington Monument. Today, an elevator makes the trip far easier, and more than 800,000 people visit the monument each year. A city law passed in 1910 restricted the height of new buildings to ensure that the monument will remain the tallest structure in Washington, D.C., a fitting tribute to a man known as the father of his country. December 7. On this date in history, in the year 1988, two earthquakes wreak havoc on Armenia. Two earthquakes hit Armenia on December 7, 1988, killing 60,000 people and destroying nearly half a million buildings. The two tremors, only minutes apart, were measured at 6.9 and 5.8 in magnitude and were felt as far away as Georgia, Turkey, and Iran. It was 11.41 a.m. when the first more powerful earthquake hit three miles from Spitak, a city of about 30,000, and 20 miles northwest of Karovakan. The epicenter was not far below the surface, which accounts in part for the terrible destruction. Also, only four minutes later, the 5.8 magnitude tremor struck nearby, collapsing buildings that had barely managed to hold during the first quake. An eight-mile rupture of the earth, several feet wide in spots, was later found to have been caused by the quakes. Spitak experienced near-total destruction. Most of the structures in the city 
were either cheaply constructed or had brick or stone roofs, and nearly all collapsed from the shaking. In Leninakon, Armenia's second-largest city, with close to 30,000 residents, about 80% of the buildings failed to stand. The sheer scale of the destruction overwhelmed the country's ability to respond. Worse still, officials, controlled by the Soviet government at the time, delayed giving permission for rescuers and relief workers to enter the area. In fact, ten days after the quakes, all foreigners were ordered out. Those rescuers, who were able to enter, worked for over a week trying to find survivors. The last survivor was pulled out from under the rubble on December 15. Many experts believe that the death toll may have far exceeded the initial 60,000 estimate, in part because thousands of people experienced crushing injuries during the quake. These victims often experienced kidney problems following the trauma and died when local health officials were not equipped to treat them. When rebuilding began in subsequent years, more attention was paid to using appropriate construction materials and putting height limits on buildings. December 8. On this date in history, in the year 1993, NAFTA is signed into law. The North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, is signed into law by President Clinton. Clinton said he hoped the agreement would encourage other nations to work toward a broader world trade pact. NAFTA, a trade pact between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, eliminated virtually all tariffs and trade restrictions between the three nations. The passage of NAFTA was one of Clinton's first major victories as the first Democratic president in 12 years, though the movement for free trade in North America had begun as a Republican initiative. During its planning stages, NAFTA was heavily criticized by Reform Party presidential candidate Ross Perot, who argued that if NAFTA was passed, Americans would hear a giant sucking sound of American companies fleeing the United States for Mexico, where employees would work for less pay and without benefits. The pact which took effect on January 1, 1994, created the world's largest free trade zone. December 9. On this date in history, in the year 1917, Jerusalem surrenders to British troops. On the morning of December 9, 1917, after Turkish troops move out of the region, after only a single day's fighting, officials of the holy city of Jerusalem offer the keys to the city to encroaching British troops. The British, led by General Edmund Allenby, who had arrived from the Western Front the previous June to take over the command in Egypt, entered the holy city two days later under strict instructions from London on how not to appear disrespectful to the city, its people, or its traditions. Allenby entered Jerusalem on foot, in deliberate contrast to Kaiser Wilhelm's more flamboyant entrance on horseback in 1898, and no Allied flags were flown over the city, while Muslim troops from India were dispatched to guard the religious landmark, the Dome of the Rock. In a proclamation declaring martial law that was read aloud to the city's people in English, French, Arabic, Hebrew, Russian, and Greek, Allenby assured them that the occupying power would not inflict further harm on Jerusalem, 
its inhabitants, or its holy places. Since your city is regarded with affection by the adherents of three of the great religions of mankind, and its soil has been consecrated by the prayers and pilgrimages of multitudes of devout people, I make it known to you that every sacred building, monument, holy spot, shrine, traditional site, endowment, pious bequest, or customary place of prayer will be maintained and protected according to the existing customs and beliefs of those whose faith they are sacred. Church bells in Rome and London rang to celebrate the peaceful British arrival in Jerusalem. Allenby's success, after so much discouragement on the Western Front, elated and inspired Allied supporters everywhere. December 10 on this date in history, in the year 1690, the first paper currency is issued in the colonies. On December 10, 1690, a failed attack on Quebec and subsequent near-mutiny forced the Massachusetts Bay Colony to issue the first paper currency in the history of the Western Hemisphere. France and Britain periodically attacked each other's North American colonies throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. In 1690, during one such war, Governor William Phipps of Britain's Massachusetts Bay Colony made a promise he could not keep. After leading a successful invasion of the French colony of Acadia, Phipps decided to raid Quebec City, promising his volunteer troops half the loot in addition to their usual pay. Soldiers were typically paid in coins, but shortages of official currency in the colonies sometimes forced armies to temporarily issue IOUs. In one case, the form of cut-up playing cards, which troops were allowed to exchange for goods and services until receiving their actual pay. Despite Phipps's grand promise, he failed to take the city, returning to Massachusetts with a damaged fleet and no treasure. With a shortage of coins and nothing else to pay the troops with, Phipps faced a potential mutiny. With no other option, on December 10, 1690, the General Court of Massachusetts ordered the printing of a limited amount of government-backed paper currency to pay the soldiers. A few months later, with tax season approaching, a law was passed removing the limit on how much currency could be printed, calling for the immediate printing of more and permitting the use of paper currency for the payment of taxes. The currency was initially unpopular for anything except paying taxes and was phased out. Within a few years, however, paper currency would return to Massachusetts. The Bank of England began issuing banknotes in 1695, also to pay for war against the French, and they became increasingly common throughout the 18th century. Paper money continued to stroke controversy throughout the early history of the United States, and it was tied to the value of gold for a surprisingly long time. It was not until 1973 that President Richard Nixon officially ended the international convertibility of the U.S. dollar into gold. December 11. On this date in history, in the year 1978, millions stolen from JFK Airport in infamous Lufthansa heist. On December 11, 1978, 
half a dozen masked robbers raided the Lufthansa Airlines cargo building at JFK Airport in New York, making off with more than $5 million in cash, $21 million in today's dollars, and almost $1 million in jewelry. To this day, the Lufthansa heist, as it is known, is considered one of the greatest in U.S. history. The plan was dreamed up by Peter Gruenwald, a Lufthansa cargo worker at JFK Airport. Gruenwald knew that Lufthansa regularly flew large amounts of unmarked cash from Europe, the U.S. currency exchanged overseas by American tourists and servicemen to JFK. Typically, this money would immediately be transferred to American banks via Brinks trucks. However, delays sometimes caused the cash delivery to arrive after the last of the trucks had left for the day, which meant it was stored at the airport until the very next day and vulnerable to theft. Gruenwald took his plan to fellow cargo worker and friend Louis Werner in hopes of putting it in motion. Unfortunately for Gruenwald, Werner saw the robbery as an opportunity to get out from under a mountain of personal gambling debt and double-crossed his friend. He took Gruenwald's plan to a big-time bookmaker in the area, Martin Krugman, who took the idea to his buddy, infamous mobster-turned-movie consultant Henry Hill. As depicted in the famous movie Goodfellas, Hill was part of a crew of gangsters run by James, Jimmy the Gent, Burke. After years of earning money through nefarious deeds, Jimmy's crew had become closely associated with the Lucchese crime family and had amassed a solid reputation in the seedy world of organized crime. Burke and Hill took over the planning of the robbery. Jimmy's crew was very familiar with JFK. Whenever they needed easy cash, the airport was an easy mark. The crew regularly hijacked trucks from JFK, often taking two or three trucks per week from there for quick money. Whether they were filled with televisions, clothes, or food, they knew how to move merchandise to make extra cash. Burke and Hill assembled a team for the robbery and waited for the word from his inside man, Werner. At about 3 o'clock a.m. on December 11, a black van loaded with the masked men pulled up to Lufthansa's storage area. The men entered the building while the getaway van was brought to the back. They burst in, wielding guns, rounding up the night shift employees, and handcuffing them in the break room. The gunmen forced a supervisor to open the 10-by-20-foot vault to avoid setting off alarms. The cash and jewels were loaded into the van, and the crew inconspicuously drove away. The entire heist took little more than an hour. Unfortunately, they didn't exactly get away free and clear. Rather than take the van to get crushed in a mob-controlled junkyard the night of the robbery, getaway driver Parnell, Stephen Stax Edwards, got drunk and left it parked illegally on the street in Brooklyn, where it was found with his fingerprints and footprint in the interior. Burke decided to cut the ties between Edwards and his crew, and the driver became the first suspect in the crime to be murdered. As Burke got more and more paranoid and greedy for a larger share of the copious amounts of cash taken in the heist, the dominoes began to fall fairly quickly. Krugman was the next to go, disappearing on January 6, 1979. By the summer of that year, eight men associated with the robbery were dead or missing. Unable to connect anything to Jimmy and 
Henry's crew, and with mobster bodies piling up, the FBI turned its attention to the inside man, Louis Werner. With help from testimony from Gruenwald, Werner was convicted for his role in the heist, but refused to cooperate or give up his co-conspirators. It seemed the Bureau would never solve the case or bring to justice those involved. These good fellas thought they had a license to steal, a license to kill, and a license to do whatever they wanted, said George Venizelos, FBI assistant director in charge in the New York field office, in a comment to Reuters. The biggest break in the investigation finally came in the spring of 1980, when Hill was arrested on six drug-related counts. It wasn't long before he had flipped, convinced by the FBI to testify against not only Burke, but Lucchese family underboss Paul Vario as well. Hill's testimony led to Burke's conviction on two separate counts, a basketball points shaving scheme and an unrelated murder, and Jimmy the Gent died in prison in 1996. Vario was convicted of racketeering and died in prison in 1988. Only a portion of the stolen money was ever recovered. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for December 5 through 11. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to visit us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.